This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Hello. Today, I'm going to have a long overdue chat with Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. He is the most plugged in reporter on the Apple beat, and that is a beat he has been on since he was in high school. Literally, that's when he started writing about Apple. Uh, there's a ton to talk about here from Apple's new mixed reality headsets they're going to come out with to regulatory fights to their TV plans, much more. One quick word about this chat. We recorded this conversation a couple hours before Apple announced yet another change to its App Store policy. And I'm pointing this out because this particular change, without getting into the nitty gritty, this is uh, uh, one that allows Spotify's and Netflix's of the world, but not everyone, to point users directly to their site so they can sign up there instead of through the App Store. This is the change that Mark says he thinks Apple should do in the conversation. Get it? So in the past, he was saying this is something he should do. And now this is actually in the past something that Apple has done. Got it? Okay, there's some time travel here. It's early in the podcast. Sorry to introduce that, but you guys are smart. You can hang with it. Mark is very smart. You will enjoy this conversation. Here's me and Mark Gurman. I'm here with Mark Gurman, star Apple reporter for Bloomberg. Welcome, Mark. Star, that's uh, that's a little bit excessive, but uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Mark Gurman is doing false modesty, I think. He has been writing about Apple literally since he was a teenager in high school, junior high or high school. Uh, this would have been high school, ninth or 10th grade. I don't remember exactly, but it's definitely been a while. I remember way back in the day when you were at uh, All Things D and then Recode. Um, and still today, obviously, I remember always uh, seeing your stories. I remember I was in a, uh, a call. I forgot what class I was in. I was in some class in college at uh, U of M. And this was freshman year, so it would have been 2012. And then everyone was just looking forward to, I believe it was iTunes 11 at the time. This was like the first big revamp. And then you had the scoop that Apple was delaying it by a month or two, um, right before I the holiday no season. no memory of this story, but thank you for aging me. Yes. That feels good. Um, yes. I, this is meant to be a discussion about you, Mark Ehrman, but, but so let's, let's do that. So sure. uh, just as a way of background, Mark has been uh, the dominant reporter on the Apple Beat since college. He was doing it as a sidelight while going to the University of Michigan. He now does that work for, for a day job at uh, Bloomberg. Welcome, Mark. Um, we're recording this beginning of September. There's a lot of stuff we want to talk about. It's possible some of the news might overtake us, and I don't know how we'll, we'll handle that, but we'll figure it out. So let's start with what we think will be news shortly. Apple traditionally rolls out new devices after Labor Day. Um, it usually means a new version of the iPhone. This is not a, a, a podcast where we spend a lot of time obsessing about new iPhone features, but since we got you here, what should we expect from the iPhone? Is it 13? Is that where we're at? I think it's going to be called the 13. Um, there's been talk of whether or not it's going to be the 12S or the 13. Traditionally, as you know, they put the S moniker on a year after a major redesign, which did happen last year. But this year, there's going to be, to answer your 
question. The big visual change is going to be a smaller notch. So the cutout on the top of the screen is going to be a little bit more narrow. Uh, other big changes this year, faster A15 processor. Uh, you're going to see a couple new colors on the phones themselves. But overall, it's going to look very similar to the, the iPhone 12. Uh, I wrote recently that Apple is planning to add satellite functionality into uh, the phone. Hardware-wise this year, it won't be unlocked until next year. Satellite meaning be- you can make a phone call via satellite from your phone like the old satellite phones did? Well, not exactly. That's the eventual goal. That's going to be years away. This is for emergency purposes, uh, very specifically. So let's say you're in a dire situation like a, a plane crash, a boat crash, a car crash, or a wildfire in an area without cellular connection. You'd be able to tap into emergency services using bandwidth traditionally used for satellites. Uh, so this is very much your, you know, your emergency James Bond type of situation, not your everyday consumer. This is going to work mm-hmm. through text messaging as well as a new sort of uh, visual feature that they're going to have in the phone. The pitch will be the iPhone can literally save your, save your life. To get meta for a second, I want to talk to you about covering Apple a little later on, but but you're describing a new iPhone and you're saying, look, it's going to be like the old iPhone. It's literally going to have a smaller notch and a different color. The idea of reporting on the new iPhone, it used to drive people like me and a lot of people I knew, like they, there was enormous interest in it. And people, regular people who didn't care about this stuff would ask me, what's the, what's the new iPhone going to be like? And it seems like for the last few years, for quite some time, actually, new iPhones like the old iPhone, a um, little better, maybe different, maybe not. Um, as someone who who lives and breathes this stuff and reports it, does it does it are you as excited writing about the new iPhone today as you were five years ago? I don't think I've lost uh, any excitement in terms of reporting on it. I still definitely get the thrill out of it, and if anything, I've enjoyed it more now that it's become even more mainstream. I sometimes like to liken covering Apple to covering the White House. It's something that's going to always be there. It's something that there's always going to be interest in. There's something there's always going to be palace intrigue in, and it's constantly a, a discussion, right? People are always wondering when's the new iPhone coming out, when's the new iPhone coming out, and that's expanded to some of the you know the other products, the watch and the AirPods as well. So it's constantly excited to me personally. Beyond writing about it, I am you know a fan of Apple and Apple products and such. Um, obviously, I'm objective in my reporting, but a lot of the interest comes from my own personal interests mm-hmm. in the company and their products and such. So there is a lot of palace intrigue, and I want to talk to you about some of the stuff Apple's been been doing and 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 announcing that isn't product related. But but one other product question: you have reported you believe Apple is going to come out with a mixed reality headset next year. First of all, what is a mixed reality headset? What do you think that will look like? What are you expecting from it? Because that is a big deal product, right? That is going to be a thing that people will have enormous interest as opposed to a new iteration of the iPhone. Yeah, that is going to be their first major new product category in seven years or so since the watch came out in 15. Uh, So there's two types of uh, reality when you're talking about these types of devices. There's augmented reality and virtual reality. As you know, VR is all-encompassing. You have screens in your face. And then AR is sort of augmentation in the real world, where I could be at an NBA game wearing my AR glasses and I can see, you know, LeBron is behind the three-point line and I'll get a little ticker saying, okay, based on his past deaths, there's a 37.5% chance he's going to make this shot. Okay. Apple's doing mixed reality. It blends both. So it's VR first. It's going to be a VR gaming headset for games, watching movies, communications and such. 
but on top of that, it will have some AR functionality as an overlay, so it can do a mix of both. This is something Facebook is trying to do with its headset. Now, Apple's play, as they've done with pretty much every other major product category, is they're going to the high end of the market, or I guess they're sort of going to invent a high end of the market. Right now, the traditional VR headset is between $300 and $700. Apple's going for the extraordinarily high end. You're going to see a price between two dollars and $3,000. And it's going to be that expensive because it's going to have high-resolution screens that you've never seen before in a VR headset. It's going to have very high-quality speakers they haven't seen before in a VR headset. It's essentially going to be the Mac Pro of VR headsets. It's not going to sell very well. It's going to be very expensive. It's going to be a halo device on top of the entire industry with the eventual goal to come out with something cheaper that's AR only down the road. We have seen a bunch of people taking cracks at VR, big companies taking cracks at VR and AR for years now. Google Glass came, didn't work, now has some sort of utility as an industrial device. A lot of hype around Magic Leap. That also really didn't work. Maybe it's an industrial device. Um, We know everyone is chasing after it. It sounds like you're saying Apple thinks this is going to be a gaming device. That also means Apple has to then roll out a bunch of games, too, for this to work? Or are they planning on having this work with someone else's games? So this is going to be a device that's going to be heavily populated by an app store and third-party developers. They've been working on this for quite some time. They've hired a lot of people from the gaming industry to, to work on this product. And you're likely to see them announce it several months before uh, the product goes on sale in order to drum up interest from developers. Obviously, you're going to see them go after people who have developed games for Apple Arcade and games for the iPhone and iPad, as well as consoles, and really try to make this a gaming-focused device. But you're also going to see a big push in terms of communication. Uh, Facebook recently rolled out a feature called Horizon Workrooms, which is basically a, uh, you have an animated character, Apple calls theirs, I believe, uh, animojis and memojis in a virtual conference room and such. You'll see similar functionality uh, I've written from from Apple as well for this headset. Uh, But the real game changer is the glasses. So did they think this first version is something, it's for hardcore gamers? Do do they think it's for people trying to run uh, uh, meetings in in cyberspace? What, What do they think the actual use case is? I mean, they're not expecting to sell, you know, a ton of these. Uh, they're aiming to sell a few a day or actually their goal, their internal benchmark is one per day per Apple retail store. And there are, I believe, 500 retailer stores and such uh, globally. And so one per day, 500 per day in, in retail stores. These are going to be between two and 3,000 a pop. And then you also have online sales and resellers as well. So I think they're probably aiming between 200 and 300,000 uh, units, if I have that right. It's in a story I wrote um, several months ago. So they're not expecting this thing to be a breakthrough seller. What they are expecting is this device to drum up intense interest in the category, uh, bring in tons of developers, really up their game operating system-wise, really you know improve the technology and tweak it over time to release the consumer-grade glasses at a lower price, probably around 2025. And the consumer gray glasses are going to look, that's the that's the Google Glass idea from years ago, right? Something that kind of looks, or or I, there was a company called North, I think, that had a version of this recently. North. Glasses, yeah. they look like glasses. I'm going to wear them. They'll be tethered to my phone in some way. And that's AR, right? That's not virtual reality. That's I'm, in, I'm interacting with the real world with images in front of me that are produced by a computer. 
That's right. That's AR. That's what the AR glasses are, are are destined to be. And, you know, I wrote a few days ago that that could be Tim Cook's final product, right? Tim Cook wants to go out with a bang. You know, he's done a lot in his 10, 11 years in charge there. And he really wants one more big bash on the way out. And I think it's going to be the glasses uh, rather than the mixed reality headset or a car. And, and every, you know, this is a constant, if you spend any time thinking, talking, writing about Apple, it's when is the, when are they going to have a next game-changing device? And the sort of narrative I've settled around is maybe never, because there's never going to be anything with the impact that the iPhone has had and everything else that they've come out with, the iPad, watches, the AirPods, they are all popular things that sell, they sell lots of them. They're, they're huge businesses, but they are not destined to reshape the world the way the iPhone did. Do you think AR, these these AR glasses, goggles, whatever we want to call them, have that capacity to be as important as the iPhone? Or do you think they belong in that next category of interesting and big and important, but not game changing? I think it's going to be somewhere between the watch and the iPhone, right? The watch is not indispensable like the iPhone is. My personal take is no matter how capable AR glasses become, people are always going to want to carry some sort of device in their pocket, in their backpack, or their purse with a large screen that could do everything. And no matter how good they make the AR glasses, no matter what functionality it has, no matter how intense the technology is, you're never going to be able to replace having a six-inch screen in your pocket. Uh, So I think it will be somewhere in the middle. I think a lot of the iPhone functionality will eventually offload into the glasses. I think you're going to see situations in lots of people in 10 years down the road that don't necessarily carry the phone at all times, but I think people are still going to have them. And obviously, the definition of what a smartphone is has changed. It's Mm -hmm. basically a uh, pocket computer or a tablet in your pocket at this point uh, with the phone being in the background. So, yeah, but I don't think that it's going to go away. Yeah, because I thought the watch might be that if it could allow me to ditch my phone and they came out with wireless versions of the watch and I I thought I was going to do some stunt journalism where I tried to live for a week or a month or whatever it was using the watch instead of the iPhone and I talked to the Apple folks about doing it and said, oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, It's not going to work. Uh, and they're right. You really, you really, the, the watch can technically work on its own, um, but just barely. And it really doesn't, it doesn't replace your phone. You cannot leave your house and, and get around your day using the watch. Boy, I could talk to you about so much stuff, but let me, let me, let me talk about some other stuff that's in the news right sure. now. Uh, there's been a drumbeat of people trying to get Apple to change the way it runs its app store. There are various lawsuits. Regulators around the world are looking at it. Recently had two big news announcements. One was a settlement Apple reached or proposed settlement Apple's reached with developers around uh, changes to the way it's going to run the app store. And the other is that South Korea just passed a law forcing Google and Apple to open up their app store there. Before we get into the details, big picture, do you think that Apple is going to be forced to make major changes worldwide to the way it runs the App Store and or the way it sort of sells its own services like Apple Music that compete with other things like Spotify in the App Store? Um, So I'll take the second question first. There has been some speculation about what Apple may have to do about its own apps that compete. Um, with other applications, whether that's Apple Music, Mail, Safari, or their, all their built-in apps. I don't think that is going to change, and I personally don't think it should change. I think that, personally, that there isn't an issue with it with Apple offering their own competing services so long that third-party apps get equal footing. Now, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but to date, you know, Spotify and Apple Music, you know, can get for the most part equal footing on the iPhone, except for a few things. When you toggle Siri, you have to uh, toggle Spotify or say you're talking to Spotify specifically. Apple could fix that pretty easily by allowing um, you to choose what your default music player is for Siri. So I think instead of of telling Siri, hey, play this song on Spotify, I may have just turned it on by accident. I could just say, play this song. I would know that I want Spotify. Right. So I think the fixes here are are pretty simple. Apple can just allow you to choose your default applications and give them absolutely equal footing mm-hmm. to their own applications. That's pretty easy. They've started and to do that. And that's not Spotify's complaint. Their complaint is we're not getting equal footing because we're paying a 30% tax and Apple doesn't have to pay that 30% tax, right. essentially. We'll, so it's we'll, not we'll equal get to, footing. Yeah. We'll, right. We'll get to that. But in terms of the applications themselves, I think the two big ones are uh, Siri and notifications. So what you're seeing is Apple sending push notifications to users to sign up or subscribe or all sorts of stuff to to make more money. Spotify and third-party applications are not allowed to do that. So if Apple sort of cuts the crap on the notifications, they give applications equal footing, it's not a problem. Now, in terms of the App Store itself and the 30% and the in-app purchase system, I think Apple needs to loosen its regulations there. I think eventually you might see them drop that 30% closer to 25% or 20% for all applications. I do think that would go a long way for them. They're still going to make a ton of money, but they've already pushed back to 15% for they say over 90% of app developers. Truth be told, that 90% of app developers only makes up a few percentage of their overall revenues. Um, We're we're pretty far in the weeds here, but to to pull it out, do, do you think that Apple thinks that what they're doing with the App Store and the way they run it and... Um, charging up to 30% and all these rules that have been in place since Steve Jobs was around, essentially, um, and existed in a very different time. Do you think they firmly believe those are important rules and or a key part of their business and it's crucial for them to keep them all intact? Or do you think they think, it's okay, we can we can let this stuff go over time. We're, we're essentially just going to sort of let it, we're going to reduce it bit by bit court ruling by court ruling, we'll eventually get to some state where we make less money from the App Store, we have less control over the App Store, but we can live with all of that. Or do you think they think this is existential? Well, I I think it's about the money, to be honest with you, because there are some very simple fixes Apple can put in place to make this entire problem go away. And this comes down to a concept known as steering. If Apple allowed Spotify to put a dialog box when you install the Spotify app on the iPhone that says, click here to sign up online, right? And then you create your Spotify account, and then you come back to the Spotify app and log in, right? Apple wouldn't get that 30%. Spotify would be very happy, and Apple really didn't have to change much, right? Apple just doesn't want to lose that 30%. So that's why they're doing it. For the user, it's not as good as just signing up and paying directly on the phone. Uh, for Spotify, it's um, they prefer a world where they don't, give Apple any cut, but that would be a reasonable compromise that everyone could live with. I think that would make the Epic trial go away. I think that would make Spotify's concerns go away. And Apple knows this. I mean, it, it, Peter, it is such a simple fix to just allow it. Apple doesn't have to do anything. Why do you think instead of just doing that, they are do, going lawsuit by lawsuit, some case state by state, some case some country by country, and defending the existing system. That takes a lot of time and energy for them to do that. So there must be some reason they are pursuing that route. 
Peter, they make over $20 billion per year on the App Store, right? Mm -hmm. That is a nice chunk of change. That's almost 40% of what they generate from services, which makes a quarter of their annual revenue. That's their revenue. It's super high margin revenue, even though they pretend right. that they don't know exists. Um, right. And it's, it's not free money, but it's very, very high margin money. It's very high margin money. And as you know, the business model of apps and Apple's App Store has changed. Five years ago, Apple was making the majority of their money from the 99 cents download fee that you pay to download an app up front. These days, everyone is going through subscriptions, right? And if Apple makes this change, Pandora's box is going to open. And every app developer who wants to make money is going to start asking users to sign up on their website and then log in through the app. Apple is going to lose billions and billions and billions a year if they make that change. So yes, it comes down to the money, but it would get regulators off their back. And so what you're going to see is they're not going to, they're going to make changes, like you said, probably on a court case by court case basis on a regional basis. South Korea, as you mentioned, is the first test of this approach, right? South Korea is going to ban Apple and Google from requiring their IAP system in app purchase. My math, back of the envelope, is that Apple only makes 3 to 5% of its annual App Store revenue from South Korea. That's not that big of a deal. So they might lose a couple hundred million dollars a year, right? That's nothing compared to the billions they might lose if this gets regulated in the U.S. or Europe. Mm -hmm. and, and to be clear, just because South Korea is forcing them to sort of open up the in-app purchases and to allow someone else to put in their own system, Someone actually has to build that system. Apple has to sort of rejigger itself to accommodate that. Someone actually has to make that system available. It's not a foregone conclusion that people are going to switch over uh, to a new system that doesn't exist yet. And it's very possible to that point that a portion of app developers might believe they want to have the benefits of using Apple's in-app purchase system, and they want to give Apple the 30%. Using the IAP system as an app developer, it gives you a lot of convenience. You don't have to deal with customer service in terms of refunds and such. Apple handles all of that. So you're getting you know, a lot of good, convenient features as a developer in exchange for that 30%, right? The argument is that that 30% at this point might be a little high. If you remember, when the App Store launched with this 30% fee 12 years ago uh, at this point, 11 years, what was it, 2008? So what are we in 2021? So 13 years ago at this point, right? It launched, I believe, with 5,000 apps. Today, you have over 2 million apps. So the, the cost that Apple has to pay to support these features obviously goes down as you have more app apps and app developers. So some people feel that the 30% should shift, you know, in correlation mm -hmm. with that. Um, and, and, and that's what people are. The, part of the argument is like, look, you might want to use uh, either as a consumer or as a developer, you might want to use the Apple system. Uh, as a consumer developer, you might want to use a rival system because it's cheaper, but you should have that choice. And that's sort of fundamentally what it comes down to. Yes. And I remember from the Epic trial, because obviously I had to listen into that, Tim Cook was asked something to the effect of, let's say you open up the App Store to other payment systems would you still collect a commission? And Tim said something to the effect of, yes, Apple needs to make a return on its investments in the App Store and in the iPhone, and it would still try to collect a commission from third-party payment providers, right? They would just have to create another billing system to collect royalties from developers. Now, I don't believe on any planet that Apple would actually do that. That just sounded like something that they said in order to defend their case. And it sounded like something they would say to try to make you know, such thoughts less convenient for app developers. But we'll see what happens in South Korea. There's a lot of questions remaining still. 
We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Mark Gurman from Bloomberg. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back. Do you think Apple is surprised that they are in this fight as the sort of theoretical tech lash was growing? You know, a lot of focus was on Facebook and Google and Twitter to some degree about, you know, bad effects they're having on society. And if you asked anyone over at Apple if they thought, you know, what should be done, they'd say, well, we think there should be more regulation. But just to be clear, we're talking about Google and Facebook because those are those are the companies doing bad stuff. We're, we're in another boat. Do you think they anticipated this level of scrutiny about the way they're running the App Store and, and calls to have, you know, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world and Amy Klobuchar's of the world saying that they should be, you know, they need structural changes to the way they run their business? First of all, I mean, me personally, I don't agree that structural changes are necessary. I don't think Apple needs to be broken up. They just need to give equal footing to third-party developers. They need to adjust their fees and some of their rules. I don't particularly think Apple Music or Apple Podcasts or TV Plus should be you know, entities on their own. I think Apple was expecting some sort of regulation or criticism. The unique part about the Apple situation compared to Google and Facebook uh, is that Apple is not only getting heat from regulators, they're also getting heat from their legion of millions of app developers. And as you know, when there's money to be lost and there's money on the line, it's going to get you know pretty hot and heavy, right? And you have developers who are giving up 30% of their paychecks before tax off the top to a two and a half trillion dollar company. And these are small businesses, you know, maybe making less than a million dollars per year if they're part mm -hmm. of the Apple small business program. So there's a lot of money to be lost here. There's a lot of money to be gained here, depending on what side you are. And that's why this is so complicated. If there was no money involved, I don't think this would be as big of a deal. You know, I uh, we can go round and round on this. I do, I do think there's something of the sort of general defense of Hey, you know, you know who else runs big businesses? Oh, there's lots of big businesses that that have um, sort of asymmetric relationships with smaller partners, right? Think of any retailer, whether it's Amazon or Walmart or anybody else. There's lots of people who would like to pay less for shelf space, et cetera, but they they can either take the deal that's offered and be part of that store, or they cannot. And I'm I'm reasonably sympathetic to that version of the Apple argument, which is if you don't want to be in 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 the App Store, don't be in the App Store. Be in some other business or sell your stuff on some other platform. And the counter to that is, you can't. That's just that's a non-answer because they're effectively a monopoly because they affect even though they don't own they only own half of the smartphone market or less globally. Um, they have the dominant platform for all these apps. I agree. And I think the fixes, like I said earlier, are, are quite simple. You make sure you do everything you can to put third-party apps on equal footing. You adjust your commission structure and some of the app store rules. I, I think this is over, but there's too much money at stake. So it's never going to happen unless Apple's very much forced to do it. And, you know, the Apple $100 million settlement you mentioned earlier, the class action with developers, right? Apple essentially gave up nothing, right? I know $100 million is a lot of money, but not to Apple. And so mm -hmm. you're probably going to see one-off deals like this. Uh, I'm very curious to see the outcome of the Epic lawsuit. Uh, 
I my sense or my speculation is that the Epic lawsuit will probably go in the favor of Apple. The judge in that lawsuit is the same judge that is probably going to approve this class action settlement. So it all right. goes together. We're expecting that 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 results of that suit any day now. It could have already happened by the time you hear this podcast. It'll also certainly be appealed. Um, so it's it's going to get go on for a while. Let me let me ask you about uh, Apple's take on its media businesses. We've t- we've mentioned Apple Music and Apple TV a few times. Apple Music is the same thing as Spotify. No one seems very passionate about it, but it certainly makes money for Apple. So that's kind of a straightforward business. I still remain very confused about what their intent for Apple TV Plus is. They're spending an enormous amount of money. They want you to buy subscriptions to Apple TV Plus, even though it doesn't have nearly the breadth of stuff that competing services have. They also want you to pay money to subscribe to things like HBO via the Apple TV hub. Do you think they think ultimately this is a big subscription service business for them? Do you think it's a store for them? Do you think it's both? And and how important do you think, do you think this is still like, do you think this is a major thrust for them or an interesting side business? Uh, I think right now it's an interesting side business, but I think Apple TV plus as structured today is just the beginning. I think on its own, building a portfolio of original content. And of course, Peter, you know better than than anyone. It's expensive and it can go very poorly. And I don't think that Apple has any business being a originals company. I think originals should be only one slice of the pie. They have the TV app, which is sort of their aggregator for other content. They have the Apple TV channels, like you mentioned, the HBO and such, where you can buy you know, uh, subscriptions to outside channels. They have originals. But I think the real play is some sort of service where they can get the existing movie industry to they can get backlogs of content from them like Netflix and Amazon Prime are doing so you augment the originals with tons of movies an ever changing library of movies just like Netflix right and they have that, said they don't want to do that way. even though they even though they've definitely looked at some of this stuff I don't I don't I, I don't believe them people people don't want to pay just for Apple originals they want a library of content that they're interested in. Just why you subscribe to Netflix, just why you subscribe to Apple Music. That's what people want. My dream scenario as a consumer would be some sort of $10 or $15 a month service where you get movie rentals from iTunes as part of a bundle of all types mm-hmm. of video content, right? When people would line up to pay 15 to 20 bucks a month to get three or four iTunes rentals. It's basically prepaying but, you know, in the psychological mind of a consumer, you know, it sounds like a good deal. And I think renting movies on iTunes, on the Apple TV, you know, or any other smart TV is a good experience. And so that's what Apple should be, you know, really pushing beyond originals. Do you think that EdEQ and the folks who are running this TV service now are surprised at how long, how much money they've had to spend to get not very good results? They have maybe two kind of well-received shows, The Morning Show uh, and Ted Lasso season one. People don't seem to like Ted Lasso season two. Um, That's after a couple years and billions of dollars in expenditures. They had a giant event in California where they brought up Oprah and Steven Spielberg, and none of those people seem to have made an impact. Um, Do you think they thought they would move faster than they have? 
Uh, yes, I do. And I also don't think spending over a billion dollars per year on original content without making an ROI is sustainable, even for a company that's worth two and a half trillion dollars. They're going to have to move on at some point or rapidly upgrade it by embedding backlogs of content. I think if they have a backlog of content, their subscriber numbers will dramatically jump up if they have a real true rival to Netflix and Amazon Prime. What I will say and this might sound obvious, but COVID really hurt them. They launched their first slate of shows right before COVID hit. Then COVID hits, the Hollywood stops, the industry stops, and they basically use a year, lose a year and a half, two years of content right when they launch. So I think- You know what, join, s- join the club. That's, that's the Quibi right. excuse. That's the HBO Max excuse. Netflix for a while benefited from COVID because they had a bunch of stuff. Now they're saying right. that COVID has hurt them because they don't have new shows. It's hurt everyone. Yes, of course. And I'm not making a, an excuse for them, but I think the reality is- They lost a lot of momentum because of it. People finished season one of The Morning Show and Ted Lasso and the other couple shows that are popular, right? And then they couldn't follow up with a season two until two years later, right? These shows first launched in the fall of 2019. The second seasons haven't even launched yet, and we're in the fall of 2021. And obviously, that's because of COVID. So, you know, I think the last year for TV Plus was a wash in some respects, At the same time, if they had a proper backlog of content, if they mitigated some of the content issues by allowing free iTunes rentals and such, if they had more going on there, COVID would not have had as as much of an impact on TV Plus as it did. I want to take a hard right here and ask you about internal Apple culture. This is getting close to sort of talking about how you do your job. I'm not going to ask you who your sources are. But I am curious, one of the reasons you did your job so well is it was very hard to get stories out of Apple for most journalists, most reporters. It was a famously closed culture. Um, and a lot of times people who did, uh, at least I found, did, did good reporting on Apple were doing it outside of the company. I would I would write uh, stories about Apple's media interests because I would talk to media companies. Long-winded way of saying, now we're hearing a lot of stories, um, some written by my colleagues, Shereen Ghaffari at Recode and, and Zoe Scheifer at, uh, sorry, Zoe, if I mispronounced your last name, at The Verge about Apple employees complaining about internal culture, using their real names, being quoted in stories. Do you think that, first of all, how significant is that change from your perspective? It's certainly new. It's certainly something that really did not happen much before. I mean, there were Apple employees who were writing under pseudonyms and, you know, expressing their feelings, you know, privately and such. Uh, But I think people going on the record and posting publicly about it is definitely new for the company. Uh, from what I've seen, it's still on a fairly small scale. Mm-hmm. Right. You could have five employees doing this. It's, it's It will seem huge, but it's five employees. Right. What you're not seeing, and maybe this is because of COVID, but you're not seeing the mass walkouts you've seen at Google and other companies. It hasn't hit that level uh, of crisis mode. Uh, I'm not entirely sure it will, uh, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Do you think that shift is, that's the shift that's affecting the way workers or a certain group of workers just view their role in the world and they want changes and it's happening in Google and Facebook and other big companies and so it would inevitably get to Apple. Do you think some of this is very specific to Slack and sort of what Slack does internally in a culture? And, and do you think some of this is Tim Cook saying actively saying, you know, we're going to we're going to allow some of this to exist. We're not going to clamp down on it in a way we would have done earlier. 
I think it's a mix of things. On the Tim Cook portion and Apple clamping down or not clamping down on it, uh, as long as these people aren't publicly posting, you know, product information under their own names, I don't think there's anything Apple can do about it. If Apple started, you know, firing employees for speaking out about workplace issues publicly, it would be a complete firestorm. They wouldn't be able to hire anyone. Uh, That's a major change, right? Because in the the old days, they would... But in the old days, they would absolutely do that. I remember talking to PR people who said they would lose their job if they were quoted and their job was to talk to the press. And they were told, no, the only person whose name is attached to anything coming from Apple is Steve Jobs. So even that seems like a significant change. Yeah, but these days it's a different story. First of all, Steve Jobs is no longer there, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have the visionary in charge they once did. This, you know, godlike figure that, you know, was a halo over the whole company. And second, Apple's not the brash, you know, market-leading startup that it perhaps once was. They have, it's an establishment, right? I'm not saying they're IBM, but they have real competition for hiring the best folks from Amazon, from Google, from Facebook, from startups, right? You can't really mess around with that anymore if they want to keep coming out with these smash products. They, They need the best people in order to get this done. So I think to answer that, that's one aspect of it. The second thing is Slack, having 10,000 employees in one group chat, being able to voice their concerns and such. That's another big change for Apple. I think Apple executives absolutely regret ever, you know, allowing Slack to be a thing at Apple. Again, join the club. Uh, Ask the New York Times and lots of other places about that. Like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Not only did it not not replace email, it it, it allowed all our workers to come together and, and attack us or each other. Right. And the third thing, uh, I think is, again, COVID. I think something that really got Apple employees talking and becoming critical of the company was the lack of remote work options. From the beginning of the pandemic, Cook was pretty, pretty, you know, hell-bent on telling employees, you will be coming back to the office. We are not going remote. We are not going to become like Google or Facebook, some of these other companies allowing remote. And I think that upset a lot of employees. And I think that drummed up a lot of criticism. And it started you know, gaining internal discussion, people raising other issues, and it sort of spread like a wildfire uh, from there. So I think the lack of remote work options was was really the beginning of the discussion points, and it sort of kept going from there. So we're talking a lot about the way Apple has changed, both products, culture. I want to talk about reporting on Apple. So again, like I said at the beginning, this is something you started doing in high school. You started doing it professionally in college, and and you went straight from, from the University of Michigan to Bloomberg. How has your reporting changed? Um, I was curious to see whether you would work out at Bloomberg simply because you'd pretty much been sort of doing, I know you were working for 9 to 5 Mac, but you were essentially a, a, a one-man blogging show when you were in college. Moving to Bloomberg, how has that affected your work? I mean, I got to tell you, there really wasn't a transition, right? There was no transition period. There was... I know it doesn't sound very sexy or very interesting for a media podcast, but it was very natural, right? I like was imagining I, a version where you would you would say, I have this hot shit new Apple scoop. It's an iterative thing about a new button or a new chip or whatever. I have a source, let's go. And then you being frustrated because your Bloomberg editors say, no, you need this many sources or we need to know who the sources are. And you and you sort of bumping your head against that that sort of internal structure. Uh, there's been none of that, not to get, you know, too deep into how the sausage is made. But, I mean, you can see how many stories I've put out from the beginning of my time at Bloomberg. Uh, nothing has changed, right? I'm still covering the same topics. 
that I covered in the past. Um, Apple, in the last five years, since I've been at Bloomberg, has become a much broader company. They've gone, you know, as we've talked about, full-blown into services, right? They're under regulatory scrutiny. We've had COVID, which... You know, a bunch of my reporting over the last year and a half has been focused on Apple's response to COVID. You have these workplace issues. You have a much broader product pipeline. The Apple Watch uh, and, and the AirPods were still in their infancy when I was at 9to5Mac. The iPad, the first iPad Pro had just come out right at the end of 9to5Mac. They've had all these custom technology shifts. So Apple is a very different company today uh, than it was, you know, in the early years of Tim Cook when I was at 9to5Mac. At and um in terms of what's changed, it's really is it's how broad Apple is and how much area there is to cover and picking and choosing your spots. I'm assuming Apple treats you differently now that you were a Bloomberg beat reporter covering Apple than they did when you were a blogger in, in college. I mean, I work with Apple in, in the same way that any other reporter at Bloomberg or any other media organization would work with the company they cover. Obviously, Apple has their media events. That's their big outreach with the press a few times a year. And before COVID, I was, you know, covering the company and, and attending the events and such. Obviously, you know, listening into the earnings calls and covering them from that standpoint as well. So it's all it's all pretty traditional. You're what, mid-20s, late-20s? Uh I am 27. Yep, 27. 27. You've been doing this basically since puberty. Um, (laughs) Do you imagine a a life where you're not writing about Apple obsessively? Is there some other topic you think you might write about one day? You know, the unique thing about me covering Apple is that I started doing this job because I was interested in Apple and interested in tech. I didn't come at it from, I'm really interested in journalism and writing and such. I need to find a topic to write about. It was the opposite. And uh, I am grateful for that. And B, I know it's very unique, right? And so this is something I absolutely can do forever. Uh, Am I going to do it forever? No. Uh, But I definitely would be more than happy to and thrilled and excited to do it. Uh, I'm always working. I'm always digging into the next story. I rarely take... uh, time away, right? I'm always very, you know, focused and, and pa- I'm passionate about it outside of the normal nine to five hours. And so that makes it really fun and easy. I, your, your, your passion comes through the computer screen that I'm talking to you <laughs> on right now. Uh, Mark Herman, I can't believe it's been like a decade and I haven't talked to you uh, like this. So I'm glad we got to do it. Um, we'll do it more often. Deal? I'd love to come on again, you know, uh, have me again after, you know, an Apple event or another big thing. We'd love to discuss it. Obviously, I know the media angle here is important, too. And I followed your work forever on all things D and Recode and such. So thank you for having me. Maybe we'll do it over a beer since you're old enough to drink now and I can buy you a drink. I am well above 21. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Be well. Thanks. Thanks again to Mark. So fun. Uh, Thanks to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing this show. Thanks to our advertisers for letting us bring it to you for free. And thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. See you soon.